Hello, this is Pastor Luke, and you are listening to the Living Hope Church Podcast. We hope you enjoy this week's sermon. Our mission is to grow disciples and multiply churches who will glorify God and transform communities. For more information about our church, please visit our website at livinghopehenderson.com. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for your word. We thank you for truth. We thank you how you lead us and guide us. And Lord, this morning as we open up scriptures, that ultimately that it would be your Holy Spirit who leads us and teaches us and guides us. Lord, we pray that all of this would be to your glory and to your honor. We love you, Lord. Amen. All right. So uh, last week, as I explained, we're starting a sermon series titled Male and Female, He Created Them, which is, that's a line out of Genesis 117, when God um, creates the, uh, the world. And uh, we're looking at how God made men and women unique and distinct and wonderful. And really, just as, as culture and world and, and society really kind of continues to accept and advocate what I would say is a confused worldview on, on genders, it's important for us to know uh, what Scripture says and to a certain extent what science says as well, too. And as I explained last time, there's really three goals coming out of this. The first is worship, right? That, that as we learn more about the wonder and the amazement of God's design, that you and I would respond with worship. Thank you, Jesus, that, that you are wise and creative and that this is how you, how you made us. Secondly, is that you would live in increased freedom. We're not looking to, to put boxes. We're not looking to restrict. We're not looking to say you can't, but we, we want you to just to be able to express freedom to be how God made you to be. For men, freedom to uh, express masculinity. For women, freedom to express femininity. And really to cheer one another on within that, and especially within the marriage context, to cheer one another on in that. And third is, is that we'd be able to have just informed, intelligent conversations around this in society and to, and to say uh, with confidence and without shame, you know, Scripture believes this, or Scripture says this, and so we believe it, but also even be able to say, like, this is what science is, is saying, and these are what the studies say, and that's, we back that. So, um, so that's what, what we're going to be looking at today. Um, we're going to be looking at Scripture and then a little bit of biology, and I'm super excited about it, maybe in kind of a nerdy way. I don't know how you feel about it, but you're here, so you're along for the ride. Uh, thanks for showing up. So, um, but that desire that we worship, live in freedom, and, and have good conversation. Uh, so today we're going to start actually in Scripture, and we're going to start in Genesis, starting at the very beginning. And it amazes me as just as I've read this and studied this, how much of science you'll see these connections back to Genesis and the creation account and the creation of man and, and woman. Uh, as, a, as a reminder, very scriptural, uh, very generally, scripture has two different kinds of literature. It has descriptive and it has prescriptive. And descriptive describes what happened. So in, uh, in Scripture, we'll read, you know, Paul traveled to Jerusalem, or they had a meal together, or Judas went out and hung himself, right? It's not that we do those things, it's just that the story is telling us this is what happened. But at the same time, we also have prescriptive, where it tells us what to do, where it will say, love your neighbor as yourself, confess Jesus as Lord, right? Put on the full armor of God. So Scripture is giving us very specific commands on what to do and, and what not to do. 
what we're going to be looking at in Genesis, admittedly, is descriptive. Okay, it, it's a story. It's describing what happened. Sometimes descriptive does has, have lessons for us, um, and and we'll see that that may be the case here. But just as we unpack Genesis two and three, just kind of some of these remarkable connections. And are there lessons in that? These, I'll I'll let you decide. But uh, starting at the very beginning, Genesis one, chapter twenty six, verse thirty one, we read this. Then God said. Let us make man in our image, after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And then we have this, this little poem here. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Then it carries on, verse 28. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and, I, and fill the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Just a few quick observations on this. One, we see that both male and female are created in the image of God, right? Both men and women are reflecting unique characteristics of God's character. We see that God gave dominion of the earth to both men and women. Uh, we see that from the very beginning that we are created unique and, and different, right? Our genders are not a result of the fall. They don't happen after the fall. They were part of, of perfection in the beginning. And we also see that the first command is to have families and subdue the earth, right? Get married, have kids, be fruitful, multiply, Fill the earth, subdue it, have dominion over it. So Genesis 1 gives us the big picture overview, and then in Genesis 2 and 3, it gives us a little bit more detail, right? It kind of drills down into the story a little bit more. And I will have to say that even though I have preached through this part of Genesis before, I learned something this week that I never realized before, and it was staring me in the face the whole time, and I never saw it in, in, until this week. Um, in one of the books, um, His Brain, Her Brain, Barb Larimore writes this. She goes, unlike Adam, Eve was fashioned in the lush, fragrant beauty of the Garden of Eden in its safe, secure shelter. And I thought, unlike Adam? What do you mean, unlike Adam? Unlike, unlike Adam, right? Because every picture I've ever seen of Adam and Eve, right? Like they're already in the garden together, strategically standing behind some shrubs or bushes, right? Like that's my understanding of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, right? Genesis 2 verse 5. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, there was no man to work the ground, and amidst was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of the dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. Verse 8. And the Lord God planted a garden in the east. And there he put the man whom he had formed. So here's the first thing I would point out to you is that Adam was not formed in the garden. Adam was formed in the, in the rugged wild, right? Like in the wilderness, no bush of the field, no plants of the field, just rugged, barren wasteland 
That is where Adam is formed. That is the beginnings of men. So, gentlemen, your ancestry did not originate in the safe, secure, cozy garden. It originated in the rugged wilderness. Now, again, one asks, like, how much do we pull out of this story? We recognize it's descriptive, but just, yeah, I place that before you as, well, isn't that rather um, Then there's this. Here's the second thing I would have you note about Adam. So verse 8, we read that, The Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east. There he put the man whom he had formed. Verse 15, The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. So God moves Adam into the garden, and then God commands Adam to work the garden and keep it. Woman, Eve, she's not in the picture yet. She's not been created. Um, And so this is a command really just given to Adam to work. And so again, in the world, before sin, in God's perfection, work is part of God's design. That God created men for work. And some of the wives are smiling. But we see that God created Adam to work and that Eve is not yet in the picture. So a couple of things we observe about Adam. He's formed in the rugged wilderness. God moves him into the garden. And then God tells him to work the garden. Right? And we're going to see later on um, just how studies have shown that a man's brain is wired for work and tasks and conquests. Then we read this, verse 18. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him, right? So everything is perfect except for this one thing, and that is that Adam is alone. And for the first time in the creation story, we read the words, not good. So as a solution as a response to Adam's aloneness, God creates Eve. Woman is created as a response to the loneliness and and to the solitude. And so the first thing we know about woman is that she is a, a solution, really, to the problem of loneliness. And later on, we're going to talk about some studies just on a woman's brain wired for relationship and connectivity and even nurture. Secondly, we see that she's brought in as a helper. Uh, She doesn't take over. She's not showing up with a new or or a different vision or a task. She's there to help Adam in the task that he has already been given. Um, Also, she's made from a rib. Um, This suggests equality and value, right? Because had she been made from the foot, had been she made from the the head, like we would have assumed a lesser or greater value or roles of servant or master. But ribs suggest equality and closeness. And then looking ahead to verse, uh, chapter 3, verse 20, we read, The man called his wife Eve because she was the mother of all living. And that's interesting because they don't have any kids yet. Like, like this is before they, they have any kids, right? So they're married, there are no kids. But already the scripture is identifying that motherhood is a part of her design and her identity long before she has kids of her own, right? A mothering mindset is not dependent upon having your own biological children. Just ask, you know, any family that has adopted. So a few observations about Eve in the story. She's created and brought straight into the garden, which, I mean, it was Adam's home. She's brought in, and it's their home together, 
Um, we saw how they were both given dominion over the earth to, to rule and subdue it. Um, she's created as a solution to his aloneness. She's made from the rib, applying closeness. And then um, scripture has already connected motherhood as a part of her identity. Chapter 3 in Genesis is where just the wheels fall off, right? So that's where you have the serpent come in and, you know, and they, there's this conversation and they're not supposed to eat the fruit, but they eat the fruit and sin enters the world and all this other kind of stuff. And so then God shows up and he gives a response or, or a curse um, to all of this. And so in verses 14 and 15, talks to the serpent, curses the serpent. There's some prophecy about Jesus. Um, and then he gives a curse to Eve. Or, I mean, curse is really only named with the serpent with the ground. But anyways, uh, verse 16, he says this. And Eve gets one verse. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And that's all we get for Eve. But I would point out this. Remember kind of what we saw around Eve kind of in the creation story? Eve's curse is created around the two things that she was created to do, or the two things that are highlighted in the creation story. One, around being, bearing children, being a mom, and secondly, her relationship with her husband. Her curse is all around those two things. The first part is pretty clear, physical pain in childbirth. Um, 1 Timothy 2.15 also indicates uh, or talks about pain in raising children, and it, it has kind of some of the, the same wording, bringing them up in the home, right, not just the, the physical act of childbirth. So it's, it's plausible that the Genesis is also hinting at referring just the, the hardships of raising children. Um, the second part is her relationship to her husband. It can be a bit confusing. Um, ESV reads, your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. Um, NIV, your desire will be for your husband, but he will rule over you. And then NLT says, your desire, you will desire to control your husband, but he will rule over you. And so kind of the question is, what's, which one's, what's the curse? Is it the first part or the second part or both of them? Right? Like, like what, are, what are we dealing with here? Um, and this, we could unpack this a lot. Um, not going to just out of time, but I would say that it, it seems like the best translation is NLT, you will desire to control your husband. Um, so Eve is now going to have the desire to control her husband or, or usurp kind of the, the role of leader or, you know, uh, his authority as leader in the home. He will rule over you. There's also a lot of uncertainty around that. But I would just say that when I look at the brokenness in the world, I would say that God is giving us a warning that there are going to be husbands who go beyond good leadership and instead are harsh and mean and domineering with their wives. So I think it's, I think it's both that, that we see brokenness in both ways in the world. Bring us back to the beginning, though. Eve's curse is all around children and a relationship with her husband. Then there's Adam's curse. Verse 17 and 18 and 19. Uh, and to Adam he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I have commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. 
Okay, for starters, Adam's curse is three times as long, in case you missed that part. But it really seems to be centered all around work, right? Farming is going to be brutal. The ground is cursed because of you. Constant fight against thorns and thistles. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. You are dust, and to dust you shall return. So there's that reference of how he was formed out in the rugged wilderness. Death, hard labor, constant toil. This is the curse for man, for Adam. Work, the very thing that that he was created to do, the thing that was actually given to him as a blessing in the Garden of Eden, will now be awful for him. And you and I, gentlemen, will struggle with work until the day we die. And some of you are farmers, so there's kind of like a double-edged thing on that, because you're dealing with the soil and the thorns and the thistles. Eve, co-dominion over the earth, reflecting a part of God's character, but a cure to Adam's loneliness, created with a mother's heart, but her curse affects motherhood and her relationship with her husband. Adam, also co-dominion over the earth, reflecting a part of God's character. Work is given to him as a blessing, but then his curse affects the earth. It makes work horrible. It's hard all the days of his life, and now sin and death have entered the world. So, kind of a happy story. Not really a happy story. (laughs) We focused in on the cursing. So the Bible says we're different, but are we? I mean, like, is there any, what, what has the science found? Hang with me. We are going to, um, as a very simple glimpse into this, just share a few fun facts about biology, about the brain. We're going to cover in like eight minutes what people will get PhDs in and study for 50 years of their life. And so this is a kind of a super simplistic whatever, but I have pictures because I'm a visual learner. Limbic system. Limbic system is a part of the brain involved in the behavior and the emotional responses. And there are four parts in the limbic system, and they are notably different in men and women. Um, The first one, hypothalamus, um, this is the brain's sex center. Uh, It's sensitive to testosterone. Um, In men, this is larger. This is more sensitive testosterone, and it is exposed to, depending on which book you look at, anywhere between 15 and 30 times um, the testosterone levels in men as it is in women. Testosterone has also been described as, their words, not mine, the secret sauce behind men's project-driven, risk-taking, next-thing perspective. It's also responsible for fueling aggression, competitiveness, and greater muscular strength. Then we have the hippocampus and the uh, amygdala, which receives, processes, and stores emotional memory. In women, it is larger, it is more active, and it is far better connected to the verbal and emotional handling centers of the brain, meaning she remembers better. Um, She will remember in more detail, and her memories are associated with emotion. Not necessarily true for men. Higher capacity to connect words and feelings to memory. Sometimes, perhaps, you've heard comedians will joke about men and women and arguing, and like the woman will bring up something that happened like five years ago and how that's really unfair. Yeah, that's a thing because she actually does remember in much better memory what happened five years ago. 
men are less likely to remember their emotional experiences. I would say that in our relationship, Joe has a much better memory for what happens, especially around family events. Far better memory on what happens. Um, also, what's interesting is that in men, these areas are actually better connected to the spinal cord They're, as compared to the verbal and emotional processing, meaning it will be hard for him to talk about, but he is built more to have a physical response. Uh, the cingulate gyrus, um, not pictured, it oversees the process of emotion, or oversees the processes of emotion, intimacy, and bonding chemicals. And it is also um, oversees neural connection and conduction throughout the brain. Again, in women, it is larger. It is more active. And it is far more connected to the cerebral cortex, um, especially the verbal and the emotional processing areas, meaning, amongst many other things, women have a higher tendency to care for others, befriend others, nurture, and to talk about her feelings. Her brain is literally wired for connection and friendship and nurture. Another one, your brain has a left and a right hemisphere. Those two hemispheres are connected by something called the corpus callosum. At six weeks, in an unborn baby boy, um, there's a flood of testosterone into his system. All kinds of male characteristics go into hyperdrive. One of those, though, is that the testosterone actually dissolves portions of the connection on the corpus callosum. Like, it literally, like, works to sever it in half and decreases future growth in that. Whereas in an unborn female, the opposite happens. Um, it's exposed to estrogen, and that prompts more connected growth. The result is that in women, the left and the right hemisphere brains are far better connected, allowing her to switch gears, move from task to task, and probably we talked about last time about how the average woman can track up to six conversations at once. I was wrong. It's actually seven. My bad. Didn't mean to undervalue you. Average woman can track seven conversations at once, and this is probably also what contributes to that. Women have a multitasking superpower that men just don't have. This is also why, and again in our household, Joe may wake up in the morning and immediately have a massive to-do list in her head, and I literally have nothing. Just, where's my wake-up drink? I need to go to the gym. Also, while women have a strong side-to-side -side connection in the brain, Men have a better front-to-back connection, but what happens is that it connects the perception area with the action area, meaning that once men set their mind on a goal or a project, they're more capable of single-minded focus on its completion. Men tend to focus on single projects better, with more focus and with less distraction. When driving, a man can focus on the road, and literally there's nothing else going on. Just the road for hours. Male brains contain six and a half times more gray matter. They call this the thinking matter. Female brains have nine and a half times um, white matter. They call that the processing matter. But as I looked at, at the description, it, it seemed more the matter that is um, connects to different parts of the brain. So I'd actually call it more of like a connectivity matter um, to, to various parts. Um, Barb Laramore writes this. Understanding this can be critical in understanding um, husbands or, or men, their stick their steadfastness, their determination, their single-mindedness, 
However, it can also assist the husbands in understanding and appreciating women, their intuition, and the way we can read people. And that's another thing that I don't really dive into, but just some of the kind of what research and science is just that women have an ability to read people way beyond what most men have, far beyond. Um, this gal talks about, we'll, write, we'll walk into a room, and he struggles to remember people's names, but I can tell you who is currently having an argument, who had an argument this morning, who is who's in good relationship, who's hitting on who, like just all of that, right? Just picking up vibes in the room. I would point out, despite these differences, that men and women routinely perform at similar levels on intelligent tests. So one sex is not smarter than the other. That said, though, you, we, do have, we are seeing more women um, in uh, graduate school and upper graduate studies and that kind of thing. But intelligent tests are, are at the same level. Here's just kind of a few other differences that have been charted. And these are not my observations. This is all referenced out of the book. Uh, men tend to be more driven, goal-focused, career-orientated, project-centered. Women tend to be more relationship-focused, to seek flexibility in their careers, and to prioritize people over projects. We were on sabbatical, and at one point in the sabbatical, Joe said this. She said, I wonder if they miss us. And I said, I've never wondered if they miss us. I've wondered if I've made a difference. Uh, another study, women prefer to be at stay-at-home moms over full-time careers. The prefrontal cortex, the region of the brain responsible for predicting the consequences of our actions. You probably know how this one's going to go. Develops earlier in females and contributes to teenage boys tend to do more rash and riskier things. And car insurance companies know this and will adjust your rates accordingly. They've told me that. Uh, the anterior cortex is the region responsible for processing emotions, including worry, and also for organization of memories. It is larger in females, which is probably why females struggle more with worrying and why the number of women diagnosed with anxiety disorders is twice that of men. Conversation. Men tend to focus on problem solving. They tend to detach from the interpersonal aspects of a problem and focus on the facts. Women's brains are wired more for intuition and emotion, so women tend to approach a problem from the standpoint of relationships. Again, I don't know if you've noticed this in your home, but the difference in how men and women will text each other. Like women will write long, caring, wonderful, and then men will give like a thumbs up. And that's it. In newborns and one-year-olds, girls consistently make more eye contact with adults and boys. In preschool, if you have a group of kids and you put a new toy in the midst of them, boys will um, leave what they're doing and they will go look at the new toy. However, if you introduce a new child into the playground, it is the girls who are more likely to get up and go meet the new child as compared to the boys. Girls learn to speak earlier, they know more words, they recall words better, they pause less, and they glide through the tongue twisters. Talking is central to friendship of females at every age. Leonard Sack, MD, PhD, the mark of truly close friendship between two girls or two women is that they tell each other secrets that they don't tell anyone else. 
And long ago it intrigued me how when you're in like the grocery store aisle and you're going to go check out and there's the whole slew of magazines, how many of the women's magazines will use the word secret on the cover? Secret to this, secret to that, secret to this, secret to that. All over the place. Boys don't spend a lot of time talking to each other, nor do they want to hear each other's secrets. They are much more likely to build models, operate toys, or play video games. Females derive strength and consolation from intimate friendships and conversation. When girls and women are under stress, they'll often look to each other for support and comfort. When boys are, or men are under stress, they usually want to do something physical or be left alone. Lastly, do the differences even out over time? No. Men and women will maintain their unique brain characteristics throughout their life. So here's the thing, though, in all this. Much of what I've just shared is not new to you. You have kids. You're married. You interact with people, right? Like, pretty much everything. I, like, I don't think anyone was surprised by any of that. Most of you are like, yep, 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 seen it. Um all over the place. But here's the thing, is that as much as you have observed this in society around you, or you know, perhaps somewhat anecdotally, everything I've just shared, I can give you a page number in a book, and in pretty much all those cases, that book will reference some other book or some other scientific study, which only just goes to affirm what you have been observing all around you this entire time. These are not casual. These are not random differences. They are a part of how God made the male and the female brain different for our benefit and for his glory. Let me leave you with, with two thoughts. So I talked about the original goal um, is that you would worship more, um, a desire for you to express with freedom, masculinity, femininity, to, to express that. I'm working on defining what that means, and then also just to have intelligent conversations with those around you. Two other thoughts, though, for today. First of all, is that you never get to use this information to justify bad behavior. You never get to say, well, my brain is wired so-and-so, and so it's whatever, you know. I don't have to apologize to you. Yeah, you do. <laughs> Christ demands that all of us mature in godly character that we mature in the fruits of the Spirit, right? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. We may express that slightly differently, but we are to mature in those things. You never get to use any of this as an excuse for poor behavior. Secondly, these differences in, in men and women's brains are meant to be complementary. They're not meant to be competing. I'm sure that they have been frustrating at some point in time, right? Like, without a doubt, especially the married people, you know this, right? Like, you look at the other person, you're like, ah, why are you, yeah, right? Like, that's happened. But these are meant to be complementary. And, and when we're living in healthy relationship with the Lord, understanding how he has made us and good communication with one another, together you make a great team, and each of you brings a strength to the equation that the other one doesn't have. Male and female, he created them because God wanted to make all of mankind in his image. And this is for our benefit, and this is for his glory. Amen. Let's pray, and then we'll sing. 
Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your creation. We thank you for your creation story as we read it in Genesis. And Lord, it is beautiful and amazing how we see these strings of connectivity that, are, that we see even in the science and, and the research today, Lord. God, I pray that for all of us here that as a result of this, that we would worship you, that we would honor you, that we would say, what a beautiful, awesome, creative, well-thought-out, intentional design that you decided to make men and women in your image. Lord, we pray that, that for those of us here, that we would live that out, that we would be able to express that with freedom, and that we would be able to cheer one another on in this. Lord, that we'd be able to have intelligent, loving, informed conversations with those of us in society to say, you know what? God made us different, and it's awesome. And the science is backing that up more and more. And Lord, overall, we just want to say that we love you, that we worship you, and that we're so very grateful. We love you, Jesus. In your name, amen. Thanks so much for listening to this week's sermon. We hope you were enriched and encouraged. If you have any questions about Christ or church or would like more information, visit our website at livinghopehenderson.com or email me directly at luke at livinghopehenderson.com. We hope you have a fantastic week. Take care and God bless.